Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to look at near-death experience and how one integrates it into their life. With me is Dr. Eben Alexander, who is the author of several books, including Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and co-authored with Karen Newell, Living in a Mindful Universe. Dr. Alexander is a former professor of uh, neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Evan. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your book, Proof of Heaven, uh, has been a bestseller now for quite a long time. Millions of copies have been sold. People all over the world are uh, aware of the near-death experience that you had. And I'm sure the fact that you entered into this experience as a materialistic scientist, as a, as a neurosurgeon, makes your story even more compelling. But I think what's interesting today to focus on is what it's like for you looking back on that experience after 10 years. How, how has it been to integrate that experience? Because it changed your life dramatically. It, it changed everything, really. I had to go back to square one in terms of my understanding of the nature of reality. And as much as people kind of marvel at the fact, uh, you know, a Harvard uh, neurosurgeon would go through such an extraordinary uh, kind of process uh, of a near-death experience and, and come back with this kind of story, uh, to them may seem like, oh my gosh, how in the world does that kind of a coincidence happen? And yet for me, it was simply... Uh, the soul journey mm -hmm. that, that one would expect. Uh, important to point out that near-death experiences, uh, in spite of the fact that they have tremendous commonalities, which basically indicate that they're referring to one very real realm, and mm -hmm. that is independent of one's prior religious beliefs, what country you grew up in, even what millennia you live in. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, astonishing, but they, there's a commonality, but in addition, each NDE, uh, is tailor made mm -hmm. for the soul undergoing it. And so for me, in looking back on it, it's perfectly natural that for kind of a hardcore materialist neuroscientist like myself who fully believed that brain creates consciousness, of course, I would have an NDE that would show me kind of the um, bright edges in reality around my knowledge base mm -hmm. and lead me into deeper uh, understanding of something about which I've had a passionate interest my whole life. And that is kind of a deeper understanding of the nature of reality, the relationship between mind and brain, mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, therefore, the fundamental nature of conscious awareness yeah. itself. Uh, so it was really tailor-made to me. But mm -hmm. of course, I'd never read the near-death experience literature before. So I had no idea of those commonalities. Mm -hmm. uh, I had always just thought, well, well, it's a trick of the dying brain, so, you know, what do they matter? Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, then having my own was a mind-bender, and as expected, as being part of the personal message, uh, it also involved a disease that was in many ways a perfect model for human death. 
Uh, I mean, for a neuroscientist interested in understanding brain-mind consciousness, you couldn't imagine anything more perfect than a severe case of bacterial meningoencephalitis. Because what that does is it's a like a laboratory prep. It's a perfect model for systematically systematically dismantling uh, kind of the primary engine of detailed conscious mm-hmm. awareness, according to modern neuroscience. Uh, because modern neuroscience would tell you that our neocortex, as the most powerful calculator in the human brain, one that is absolutely, according to their view, involved with all of the detailed conscious mm-hmm. awareness of everything we've ever experienced, everything that we see, everything we hear, all of our thoughts, our, our, the language in our mind, our kind of rational mm-hmm. thinking, our, our sense of free will and of uh, executive function and of perception of body and space, every bit of that kind of detailed awareness depends on some par- part of the neocortex still working. And that's why my uh, gram-negative bacterial meningitis, with all the neurologic evidence my doctors had of the destruction, not only my neocortex, mm-hmm. but even of my brain stem from mm-hmm. day one. I mean, this was a very severe case. And also the scans, CT and MRI scans, revealed that it was a full thickness destruction, that I had swelling all the way down to the below the six layers of my neocortex to where they uh, intersect with the white matter. So, in, in effect, it's a miracle you're alive. Well, let's put it this way. I, my doctors estimated when I first got to that emergency room, seizing and in coma mm-hmm. on that Monday morning, November uh, 10th of 2008, that uh, I had a 10% chance of survival. Mm-hmm. So that's not a miracle. That's a 10% chance. By the end of the week, I was down to a 2% chance of survival. Um, but then they never thought you would fully recover. Well, see, that's that's the part that really is miraculous mm-hmm. and that my doctors to this day uh, would tell you is inexplicable based on Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Because basically, even though when I woke up uh, in the ICU bed on day seven of coma, uh, what, waking up is not really the right word to use. Because, in fact, when I woke up, all I remembered was my near-death experience, that incredible spiritual journey I had been on. Mm-hmm. But one anomaly of my experience is the fact that I was amnesic. I didn't remember anything of Evan Alexander's life. In fact, during the entire coma experience, I had no words or language at all. Um, and when I did wake up that day seven of coma in that ICU bed with my mother, my sisters, uh, my former spouse, my sons at the bedside, I had no idea who these beings were. That's how kind of wrecked yeah. my mind was. But soon after that, they extubated me and my words and language were coming back very mm-hmm. quickly. Uh, and within a day or two, I was recognizing people quite readily. In fact, I, I realized that the six faces that I described seeing towards the end of my near-death experience, who I didn't recognize at the time, who would kind of visualize out of the muck and utter a few sounds that I couldn't interpret and then disappear again. Uh, five of those were people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. Oh. Uh, and notably, there were many family and friends who had been there earlier in the week who I did not remember at mm-hmm. all. Uh, and so, in fact, those five faces that it occurred at the very end of my conscious awareness of the experience helped to frame that the vast majority of the coma experience happened between days one and five when my doctors knew full well from my neurologic exams 
that my Glasgow coma scale, which normally ranges from three in a corpse to 15 in a normally waking person, Mm -hmm. with any score below nine being deep coma, well, those five days when I had all the experience, my Glasgow coma scale was between five and seven. So I was in very Mm -hmm. deep coma. They knew from the scans that the entire neocortex was involved. That's the part that is miraculous, is that all of it came back within Mm -hmm. uh, really two months after coma. All my memories, uh, in fact, my memories came back and I realized in conversations with family and friends over the next year or two that the memories were more complete after Mm -hmm. they returned. And it's to me, it was a very strong indicator that memory is not even stored in the brain. That's something that we cover in detail in the third book in Living in a Mindful Universe. And it's kind of a shocking reality to modern neuroscientists. Uh, But neurosurgeons have suspected for a long time that memories don't seem to be resident in the brain because mainly... Uh, in spite of the millions of neocortical resections uh, or removal of brain tissue we've done for tumors, vascular lesions, all that kind of thing over the last century, you never have a case where you have a broad swathe of identifiable long-term memories that seem to be deleted by that kind of brain resection. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem that physical memory is there in the brain at all. It's just that our brain serves as an access point to both consciousness and memory. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is the part that my doctors would tell you today is an absolute miracle, that I could have any experience at all. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was the shocker. When I first came back, of course, I had no idea how sick I had been. So I assumed, given that it was way too real to be real, that it had to be a, a vast hallucination. Mm-hmm. But then as I went back over the next weeks and months reviewing my medical records, my scans, talking it all over with my neurologists and with the other doctors, started realizing the medical records I were reviewing were those of somebody destined to die, certainly not someone who would have a profound experience and then come back and tell the world about it. And that's where I think my story really garnered significant uh, uh, interest in the scientific and medical community. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've been asked to give talks to medical and surgical and nursing groups around the world because they recognize the kind of impossibility mm-hmm. that I faced in trying to explain my experience against the setting of my medical records, which suggested that it was impossible. Well, to my understanding, uh, the brain of an adult human being doesn't regenerate itself like the whole neocortex uh, that's not, uh, I mean, known in a a child, I'm told, the brain is very plastic. Right. Well, that's very true that Mm -hmm. uh, neuroplasticity, the ability of uh, new neurons to form and form new connections and all that, uh, is certainly more robust in, in children than in adults. And when I trained, I finished medical school in 1980, my residency in 1987. And back in those days, we really didn't believe there was any significant neuroplasticity in adult brains. But Mm -hmm. we've since discovered that is just not true. Mm -hmm. People uh, can manifest uh, uh, quite extraordinary uh, modes of recovery. Uh, I mean, my my case is one example, mm-hmm. uh, even though it still is something where most doctors would consider it miraculous that I spent seven days in coma due to severe bacterial meningoencephalitis, especially a gram negative, which is the worst kind you can have, even to the point where my cerebrospinal fluid glucose level, which normally, normally would be 60 to 80, mm-hmm. and somebody with a very bad meningitis might go down as low as 20, and in my case, it went to one. None of my doctors or their consultants had ever seen 
a meningitis case that severe. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think my doctors to this day, uh, in spite of the fact that, yes, a 2% chance of recovery is not a miracle, it's a 2% chance, you know, 1 in 50. But, reco- but to recover, yeah. uh-huh. that part is really astonishing. I mean, they expected, mm-hmm. as I recall, at the uh, towards the end of the coma, that if you recovered at all, which was unlikely that you would be spending the rest of your life uh, in a nursing that's home. That's correct. Uh, they didn't expect any chance of recovering mental function. In other words, mm-hmm. no quality of life. Uh, and that's why on that seventh day, that mm-hmm. morning, uh, seventh day of coma, they had just had a family conference where uh, they reiterated that things just had not worked out well, that uh, uh, that I'd been on three very powerful intravenous antibiotics for the week. I'd been on the ventilator all week long, but my uh, neurologic condition was really not improving at all. Uh, and they thought it would be smarter just to let nature take its course. Mm-hmm. And the recommendation there was that it was time to stop the antibiotics. Uh, and it was a few hours later that I came back to this world. But again, as I said, my doctors were no fools. When mm-hmm. I came back, my brain was absolutely wrecked mm-hmm. by the experience. And it took and months for you to really... It did take two months for mm-hmm. everything to come back. And, mm-hmm. and I would say for the first week or two, it was very frightening for my family to yeah. witness because mm-hmm. they thought, oh, this wonderful miracle, he's coming back to us, but oh my God, he's totally wrecked. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is horrible. It would have been better for him to go on and die. Mm-hmm. That's why the doctors had recommended that course. And yet my recovery mm-hmm. was so extraordinary. It just kind of, uh, I came rocketing out of that, uh, you know, to a point where I could even discuss and review my medical records with my doctors within a month or so, mm-hmm. which to them was an absolute mm-hmm. shocker. Because immediately when you came out of the coma, I, I gather you were rather delirious. Yes, I was, in fact. And, and that's a beautiful part of the story that I, I share in Proof of Heaven, because after they extubated me, uh, you know, at the very earliest of my kind of waking up, uh, I really don't remember that. I, I was told by my family that I was sitting there on the bed like this uh, little Buddha, mm-hmm. and I was saying, all is well. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. All is well. Now, mm-hmm. I do not remember saying those words, but yeah. there were many witnesses, and I'm sure I said it with other conviction. But the upshot is, <clears throat> even though I had been extubated mm-hmm. um, and they thought I was waking up, I was kind of in and out of a a wild uh, kind of delusional, paranoid nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the interesting thing <clears throat> is even in the midst of that crazy uh, kind of 36 hours of in and out of the nightmare, I knew that that was a delusion. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't real. Now, there were parts of it that seemed very real, and I took a little convincing from my family. For example, part of that uh, kind of uh, delusion state <clears throat> had to do with the fact that I was in a cancer ward, a mm. cancer hospital in South Florida mm-hmm. that was many uh, three adjacent buildings with these escalators coming up through it. And I can remember it now. It's kind of a foggy memory of things, even though at the time it seemed pretty real. You were in Virginia, But actually. I was in Virginia. I was yeah. actually in Virginia. And that's the part where my uh, family challenged me on it, mm-hmm. and especially challenging me on how I got there. Yeah. And I knew the system that had got me there in, in this crazy uh, nightmare mm-hmm. was a made-up system of underground tubes and trains. And oh. I remember this elaborate system of, of getting me there. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is compared to the memories from deep coma, yeah. 
mm-hmm. you know, the spiritual journey that I report in Proof of Heaven that happened when I had a documented Glasgow coma scale of six to seven deep coma, documented CT and MRI evidence that all eight lobes of my brain had full thickness inflammation from this destructive uh, and should have killed me bacterial meningitis. Those memories are sharp and clear, as sharp today as if they happened yesterday. Uh, the the mm-hmm. deep coma memories, mm-hmm. whereas those uh, kind of paranoid, delusional ICU psychosis yeah. memories of the South Florida Cancer Clinic and these tube trains underground, all that kind of mm-hmm. wildness I knew was a hallucination. So they're very different. Mm-hmm. And, and I've since uh, discovered several uh, scientific papers from doctors who study NDEs. Uh, where they look at the quality of memories over time from a near-death experience versus dreams or psychedelic drug experiences, other imaginatory experiences, or real-life experiences, like mm-hmm. a car wreck or something that really sticks in your mind. And the interesting thing that these scientists have uncovered about near-death experiences, including scientists both in the U.S. and in Europe, um, are that the near-death memories are far more stable and resilient over time. Mm-hmm. And that's something that makes perfect sense to me because uh, I've given more than uh, 400 talks to audiences around the world about my experience, and I very often have people coming up to me after these talks, many of whom are completely naive to the NDE literature. Mm-hmm. And they will come up and say, I've never told anybody this before, but... And then they'll share a story with me that happened to them. It could have happened 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet they claim to remember it as clearly as if it just happened yesterday. These stories are very extraordinary. They are not hallucinations. Mm -hmm. They are not dreams. They're not the effect of of drugs unless you have, you know, documented evidence of a certain psychotomimetic kind of drug that's on board at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, in fact, there's recently been a case um, a case report on my medical records that mm-hmm. I think is very important uh, for this world because uh, there was a lay press article about my case that was completely erroneous uh, uh, and misinterpreted uh, many facts of, of my life and, and was basically an ad hominem attack. And that, that article tried to portray that I was in a coma only because of pharmacologic manipulation, mm-hmm. failed to acknowledge uh, that I was in deep coma from the moment, you know, that I was taken by the EMTs from my home. I was in deep coma already, long before any IVs or drugs went in, and stayed in that coma all week long, and in fact was still on very heavy sedation when I came out of coma. But anyway, that case report will come mm-hmm. out. It's uh, authored by Bruce, uh, Bruce Grayson uh, and his co-investigators at UVA. It'll come out in the Journal, Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases oh. in September okay. of 2018. So that's immediately upon us. And it makes a very clear case that I was in deep coma due to severe brain damage from meningitis. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important to the medical community is because a coma, because of destruction of the neocortex, Mm -hmm. should get rid of any hallucination, dream, or drug effect of conscious awareness because of that global destruction of the neocortex. Well, one of the unique features that you describe, and and I haven't encountered this in other uh, accounts of near-death experiences, that when when you first, uh, in effect, arrived in this alternative reality, you found yourself sort of embedded in in an unpleasant uh, muck 
of, of some sort. Well, it sounds uh, foreboding and yeah. uh, kind of unpleasant, but given that I was totally amnesic, mm-hmm. you know, so this is like my birth into the universe as yeah. an awareness. I had no memories of Earth or humanity or being Evan Alexander, none of the words or language, religious concepts, none of the scientific knowledge. None of that made it through. Mm-hmm. And that tabula rasa or empty slate, yeah. I think, was very important for the journey I had to go through. And that mm-hmm. only became clear in the months and years after the coma, Mm -hmm. just how critical that empty slate was. But that was part of the the teaching about the brain-mind connection and about the nature of consciousness, was the fact that I had to delete all memories, in a sense, to go through it all. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the fact that all my memories came back even better than they were before in the eight months after coma. But uh, I think that empty slate was very important. So mm-hmm. it all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, yeah. uh, like being in dirty jello. And I, I, even though I had no body awareness during any part of the journey, mm-hmm. uh, I could still, I was a piece of awareness and I could sense around me. And I remember roots or blood vessels or something that were just mm-hmm. everywhere. And given that I had no memory moment to moment, it seemed to go for eons, mm. but it didn't. It it ended because there came this slowly spinning, very clear white light mm-hmm. that had fine silvery and golden tendrils off of it. And as that white light came towards me, one of the most beautiful aspects of it, it came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And the notes yeah. of that melody mm-hmm. proved crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as human beings have used sound, uh, you know, for thou- tens of thousands of years yep. to get into altered states of conscious mm-hmm. awareness. For example, the didgeridoo, which I think is one of the oh, most yes. healing musical instruments on earth, uh, supposedly has been around for 40,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Sound, vibration, frequency not only works to take us out of the four-dimensional space-time of this very dense material realm Mm -hmm. to help liberate our conscious awareness, uh, but also sound serves as kind of a vehicle for traversal of multiple spiritual realms. Mm -hmm. And that's what I first learned with that spinning melody of light that ushered me up out of that ugly earthworm eye view realm Mm -hmm. into this beautiful gateway valley that in many ways was much more real than this world. Mm-hmm. And it was a world with with beautiful, lush uh, plant growth everywhere, and all of it growing, very dynamic and actively growing. There were no signs of death or decay anywhere. And I remember sparkling blue waterfalls into these crystal blue pools, uh, and there were thousands of beings down below us all dancing. And when I came back to this world and tried to put words to it and tried to write all this down, mm-hmm. I, I labeled those as souls between mm-hmm. lives. They were dressed in kind of very simple kind of peasant garb, but in beautiful colors, colors mm-hmm. beyond the rainbow. And there was lots of joy and merriment going on. There were children playing and dogs jumping, incredible festivities down below. Mm-hmm. And I was witnessing it because I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly. Mm-hmm. And uh, on this butterfly wing, um, there were millions of other b- butterflies, and they were looping and spiraling in these vast formations. Um, and uh, I remember witnessing all that. And the reason all this was so natural and seemed perfectly uh, 
real to me was because up above were these swooping orbs, uh, golden orbs of light, each one seemed to, seeming to be a pure spiritual essence. And they mm-hmm. were leaving these sparkling golden trails uh, against this blue-black velvety sky. And the entire sit was, scene was just lit by these billowing clouds of pure color. But these swooping orbs up above were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness uh, and just resonate this incredible mm. power of oneness, of identification. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to explain these journeys is we're not just seeing with the eyes or hearing with the ears, which are very kind of filtered and limited uh, sensory modalities. And in these realms, in these spiritual realms, we become all of it. You can essentially see through everything because mm-hmm. you're becoming it uh, and forming this beautiful model of all of it that transcends four-dimensional space-time. It's an extremely elaborate form of knowing. It's amazing you can put it into words at all. Well, it, it you know, I wrestled and struggled with the words in Proof mm-hmm. of Heaven trying mm-hmm. to get it right. And at the end of the day, I finally felt like the words were about as as good as the words I could do. And I, I mm-hmm. often feel that way in some of my discussions of it in presentations and interviews and conferences. But in fact, you're absolutely right. You cannot put it into words. And that's one of the reasons why I think people also confuse very much. There's a, a There are a lot of people out these days who say, oh, sounds like a DMT trip, dimethyltryptamine, mm-hmm. which right. is a hallucinogen that uh, purportedly is found in minute amounts in human beings, although that is uh, somewhat up to debate. But the reality is the words may sound the same, but the words are not really describing the fullness of the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would I would just caution you to to know that, no, this is much more than a psychedelic drug trip in terms of its mm-hmm. reality, in terms of its meaning. Uh, in fact, there have been direct comparisons of that in the scientific literature, uh, and they basically find that all the transcendental aspects of a near-death experience, like encountering souls of departed loved ones, and that full-blown oneness with the power of pure love at the creative source of the universe, um, and and a lot about life mission and seeing one's future, things like that, aren't as readily apparent in a in a psychedelic drug mm-hmm. trip, but they certainly come through in robust fashion in the more profound near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, there was also, if I recall, a timeless quality. It's, it felt like you might have been there for years. Well, that that is, uh, uh, it actually triggered off a tremendous interest I have in the nature of time. Mm-hmm. And, and the one thing that uh, it became very clear to me is that what we see as past, present, future uh, is very much a fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, when you get into uh, conventional science, whether you're talking about uh, relativity and the way it looks at time and how time and space are interchangeable, yeah. or you look at quantum physics and the way that it kind of portrays uh, basically a time flow that can go in loops, uh, really the only thing that gives us a direction of time in our human kind of macro-sized world, you know, halfway between the size of a quark or an electron and a galaxy, um, is the second law of thermodynamics, which is a statistical law that simply talks about order and disorder in large numbers of particles. Uh, and and that's what basically gives us an arrow of time. But other than that, uh, in terms of our world of physics, time should easily flow both directions. Mm-hmm. And yet we always seem to have this sense that it only goes in one direction. Now, in, in my journey, 
I had to even label something that I call deep time. Uh, and I've heard the, the phrase deep time used by others in slightly different ways. But I think uh, all of us are trying to converge on the notion. For me, deep time uh, is a complete different ordering of causality uh, that you have to invoke in connecting to those realms. For example, that, that Gateway Valley was only a stepping stone on my way out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we can discuss more about that stepping stone and where it was leading. But uh, that would be the same realm where we go through life reviews, where we reunite with our higher soul at the time of leaving the physical body. And the life review is very important. It's been described by near-death experiencers going back uh, at least 2,400 years. Mm-hmm. You know, Plato writes about the Armenian soldier Ur killed in battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was out dead on the battlefield for several days before they finally collected all the bodies, put them on a funeral pyre. And... Uh, just before they lit it, Ur came back to life. Yeah. And essentially, kind of the, the journey he portrayed is that uh, when you die, you go through a review of the most important mm-hmm. kind of pertinent lessons still to be learned. So if you're one of those who handed out pain and suffering to others, as soldiers often do, you got to be ready to face uh, face that. We mm-hmm. reap what we sow. Uh, in essence, the life review is a beautiful example of how the boundaries of self are a fiction. They support the drama of this world where we have apparent separation of self from other mm-hmm. self. Um, and yet in a life review, you experience the impact of not only of your actions, but even of your thoughts on those around you. Mm-hmm. And you experience it as they experience it. Mm-hmm. That's why it's such a good course corrective to help us learn to treat others. And this was part of your experience. It was part of the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we should should treat others as we would like to be treated. I mean, you could almost look at it as a neutral ground, even though uh, in that life review setting, mm-hmm. it's in that infinite ocean of pure, unconditional love of that God force that, of course, is what so many near-death experiences bring da- back to this mm-hmm. world and and know full well in their own heart, in their emotional state, there's nothing to fear about death because it's a reuniting with that ocean of absolute uh, warmth and love and kindness and compassion and mercy of that creative source of this universe. But the, And the idea that you are experiencing uh, the pain and the also the joy that you and uh, are responsible for and other people, but experiencing it through their eyes. Right, as they and their feelings, and their, their feelings. heart. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good reason to remember to treat others as we would like to be treated. It also suggests that, that at some level of our consciousness, we are everyone. We are, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I think that that is something that we make a very clear point of in our uh, third book, In Living in a Mindful Universe. It was clear to me uh, in my coma journey that we're really sharing one mind, yeah. uh, that when we die, we it's basically like a raindrop falling back into the ocean. Uh, in a sense, although it's also interesting uh, that there's this, this tremendous, tremendous body of evidence uh, concerning reincarnation. Yeah. Um, and uh, scientific study of reincarnation. Yes. So it's not really a question of whether or not you want to believe it or if your religious texts support it. Most religious texts do. In fact, original Christianity uh, fully supports reincarnation. You know, Christ talking about uh, uh, the prophet who was reincarnated as John the Baptist. But mm-hmm. uh, it was actually Constantine several centuries later 
uh, who made any talk of reincarnation punishable by inverted crucifixion. He didn't like that idea because of how it interfered with their ability to control people uh, with what they were putting mm-hmm. together at the Council of Nicaea and that kind of thing, of codifying and, and unifying mm-hmm. uh, Christian religious yeah. thought. But it's certainly not, uh, reincarnation is completely compatible mm-hmm. with early Christianity and other faiths. And then the scientific evidence that supports it today. Uh, and for any of your listeners who are interested, I would steer them uh, to, uh, I think it's uvadops.org, mm-hmm. which is University the Division of, of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia, yeah. under the guidance initially of Ian Stevenson back mm-hmm. in the 60s, 70s, 80s, more recently of Dr. Jim Tucker. They've studied more than 2,700 cases. Yeah. Now, we've done extensive yeah. interviews on, on that here on this Excellent. channel. Excellent. Very good. Now, let me ask you this question, because you spent your whole life as a materialistic scientist. Now, you've had this incredible experience, and you're coming out of it, but you also have a lifetime of habits of thinking differently. Mm-hmm. It must have taken you a while to uh, absorb all of this, to to come to the realizations that you now have. They didn't happen over, overnight. Well, it didn't. You're right. And yes, it, it mm-hmm. really took going back to square one. Mm-hmm. I had to question everything going back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes any of the assumptions I had about the nature of reality. And one of the most fundamental assumptions uh, in conventional materialist uh, neuroscience is that only the physical world exists. Yeah. And if only the physical world exists, then somehow you've got to come up with a way to explain consciousness and mind based on the physical workings of the brain. Right. And that's where it hits an absolute wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the mid-1990s, David Chalmers wrote his book, The Conscious Mind. Yeah which was really a consolidation of several decades of work from around the world mm-hmm. that were pointing out the lapses that uh, all the workings of the brain do not explain the workings of the mind. In fact, uh, uh, I I very much revere the, the work of uh, Wilder Penfield. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most renowned neurosurgeons of the 20th century. Yep. He was Canadian, worked out of Montreal, uh, and he is in better position than just about anybody on earth to comment a- around the brain-mind connection because a lot of his work involved electrically stimulating the brain in awake patients. He was a neurosurgeon. He was a neurosurgeon like who dealt with epilepsy. That mm-hmm. was one of his uh, big topics. And to, uh, to resect the part of the brain that causes the epilepsy, often you have to map it out. It mm-hmm. turns out the brain feels no pain at all. Yeah. I've done several hundred of those cases myself, awake craniotomies uh, in patients where you map out the brain by mm-hmm. electrically stimulating, then having the patient report to you yeah. what kind of memory or sensation they have during that electrical stimulation. Um, and initially, Penfield thought he was hot on the trail of uncovering the source of memory. Mm-hmm. But then he came to realize, well, even if he resected a part of brain uh, that he thought contained the memory, uh, that that memory could still be very robust in that patient. Yeah. So he realized it wasn't so simple. And in fact, he wrote a book 
1975 that summarized his uh, life experience in such cases. That book is called The Mystery of the Mind. And in that book, he makes it clear time after time after time, uh, all throughout the book, mm -hmm. that you cannot explain mind and consciousness based simply on the workings of the brain. Not yeah. only that, you would never find anything uh, resembling free will mm -hmm. in the brain itself. That consciousness and free will... Uh, and he was extrapolating to the point of saying memory, too, because mm -hmm. he eliminated the possibility uh, that memory seemed to be in the neocortex. But generally, the profession, as much as they revere Wilder Penfield, they didn't follow him that far. Well, it's a real tragedy. Uh, we actually met uh, one of his uh, team in Montreal who had been involved mm -hmm. in his medical care, who said uh, that when he published that book, it was a year before he died of mm -hmm. cancer. And... Um, that the kind of story on the streets there at the Montreal Neurologic Institute uh, were that basically the, the cancer had influenced his thinking. So it was a very kind of cheap cop-out. Anybody who reads mm -hmm. the book will realize his thinking was not at all impaired. It's a very insightful, reflective book. Mm -hmm. I've, I've read of a lot of his other work around that time, the foundational work from mm -hmm. the 1940s and 50s uh, in his scientific papers that led to those conclusions he was very uh, clear of mind and couldn't have been clearer on an interpretation of the data. And yet the world, the scientific world in particular, was not ready to hear in 1975 that the yeah. brain was not the producer of consciousness. I mean, you got trained as a neurosurgeon after that. Much after that. By and you had no problem, I imagine, assuming that consciousness was a product of the brain. That's what I was taught, and that's what I believed. Now, the important thing to point out yeah is that if we take that supposition and then we go to a modern neuroscientist or philosopher of mind and we ask them, oh, the brain produces consciousness. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> they won't have anything to say. Yeah. There is nothing there. There are some vague uh, uh, kind of theoretical models that talk about information processing and information ordering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and make some big assumptions about how that might somehow work in the brain. Yeah. But in terms of actually having any notion whatsoever about how uh, the neurons in the brain, the 100 billion mm -hmm. uh, nerve cells in the brain interacting, give rise to consciousness, nobody has the remotest clue. I have heard speculation about neural loops and feedback, uh, cybernetic feedback loops within the uh, nervous system. Uh, it's about as close as I've ever heard. Well, you know, they, they have some working models mm -hmm. that uh, uh, seem to be kind of okay at their, their very primitive level. Yeah. And those models basically involve, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the neocortex mm -hmm. is the main calculator. That's yeah. by far the most powerful calculator in the brain. In fact, it's amazing <clears throat> how those six cell layers mm -hmm. in the neocortex have been modified to do so many functions. I mean, everything that we see, everything that we hear, our body position in space. I mean, all of what I see out there, you've got to remember, none of that is happening out there. Every bit of what we sense is out there is actually an internal construct within mind mm -hmm. that we think is a fairly faithful model yeah. of what is out there. Right. Now, you can show through, for example, uh uh, mismatches between visual and tactile stimuli, you can easily demonstrate ways to fool that system in, into thinking certain things. But then where we really run into a wall 
uh, is with quantum physics itself. And that, that's kind of another topic. Mm-hmm. But the reality is what, what we end up finding, uh, in the world of quantum physics and the reason it's been so mystifying over so many years is that it really is pr- the most fundamental way of asking the brain mind question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one reason why materialist science has gotten so kind of hopelessly mm-hmm. lost in trying to understand it all, but it's really all mm-hmm. implying that fundamental nature of consciousness, which of course is something that we explain soup to nuts in pretty full detail in that third book, Living in a Mindful mm-hmm. Universe. But um, it's that much deeper kind of understanding that was forced on me. And um, it's really one of the biggest smoke and mirrors tricks of 20th and early 21st century science that the public at large still seems to believe that modern science, and especially neuroscience, is so good that they're almost on the verge of describing consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're almost on the verge of describing exactly how the brain is not the producer of consciousness at all, but that consciousness is something far more fundamental. That's what they're on the verge of. But that science, that cutting edge of science, fully opens the door not only to the reality of the afterlife, but of reincarnation. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we just need a much bigger theater of operations to really kind of understand where all this is headed. Uh, But the general models you're referring to would involve that neocortex as the final kind of calculator, but it's interactions of the neocortex with the thalamus, which are the Mm -hmm. deep gray structures, fairly substantial structures, but still a more advanced part of the brain. Uh, I mean, you can find uh, the thalamus in animal systems going uh, back, uh, you know, at least uh, 100 million it's years. The mammalian brain, basically. Mamma- mammalian brain, exactly. Yeah. But uh, it turns out that also modern neuroscience would involve deeper, more primitive structures mm-hmm. uh, going down into the brain stem that actually play a role in kind of igniting and unifying mm-hmm. consciousness. Well, we, I hope we can have a separate conversation. We can do that. There's uh, much more to say uh, about that. Uh, about that, but I'm interested in not just the intellectual integration that you've obviously been engaged in as, as a professor yourself, but the uh, what it meant for you emotionally, spiritually to... Uh, change your life completely as a result of this experience. Well, you you know, I was uh, at a meeting um, in Paris, France, about a year and a half ago, and it Mm -hmm. was a big scientific meeting on NDEs, and uh, they had a lot of scientists there who were fully informed (laughs) about the profound kind of spiritual implications Mm -hmm. uh, of near-death experiences. But still, some of the scientists, when they would hear me talk about my experience, Mm Um, and of the uh, kind of heartfelt, the love, because as I, I put it in Proof of Heaven, one of the deepest scientific truths of my journey to me when I came back from it and began interpreting it was that ultimate healing power of love. You cannot get away from that. And if you try, you know, as a scientist, we got to keep this in a very kind of cognitive, intellectual setting. When you've been there and touched that and and dipped into it and mm-hmm. felt the power of it and and what it gives in the ears, you cannot deny the emotional, heartfelt, loving nature of the journey. And also, it I would say that my uh, I've come to realize much more fully how um, all of this—the physical, the mental, the emotional aspects of each and every one of us—depends ultimately on kind of the spiritual aspects, mm-hmm. and that's what all of this discussion is about. Discussion about consciousness in general, relationship of brain and mind, the very existence of the soul, 
every bit of that uh, is you cannot get away from that concept of love and of the oneness of mind. I think that's one of the most important concepts. You brought that up a little while ago. Mm-hmm. To your interested readers, I would point out that excellent book by Dr. Larry Dossie, The One Mind. Mm-hmm. And One Mind, it's an incredibly powerful book. He, it's a topic he took on because he was an identical twin. And he knew that he seemed to have kind of te- a telepathic connection with his twin. And of course, anybody who studies twins will realize that that's pretty easily demonstrable in, in twin mm-hmm. populations. <clears throat> but then what most people don't realize is you can also demonstrate telepathy in in other people. And there are ways to kind of set the stage to enhance your telepathic skills. And a lot of that telepathy is even more powerful when you invoke kind of heart consciousness Mm -hmm. and the emotional power. Because if all you're trying to do is uh, be telepathically connected to cognitive constructs, they don't have the same kind of weight and, and kind of resonant power that you can find in emotional constructs. Mm-hmm. And that's why telepathy and empathy, uh, you know, often can work hand in hand and we can really have those strong uh, interconnections. Uh, in some of the twin studies, uh, their connection is so strong that, for example, one twin might burn his finger on a stove and the other twin a thousand miles away is the one who develops the blister. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah, it's astonishing. But mm-hmm. People need to realize this connection goes very, very deep. Mm-hmm. And it's much more than just a, a subtle mental connection. It can be a very powerful uh, physical connection, too, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Did you regard yourself as an atheist prior to that experience? Well, I had grown up in a Methodist church in North Carolina. I would say my father, my adopted father, uh, who was an academic neurosurgeon, and he was uh a beautiful mentor to me and and resource and uh, kind of uh, a role model. Mm-hmm. He uh, he had been a combat surgeon in the Second World War, and I think he got through that conflict relatively unscathed because of his religious beliefs. He came back to be a chairman of a neurosurgical training program in the U.S. and um, never it never conflicted at all with his faith in God. He had a very uh, profound sense of uh, the reality of God, the power of prayer, uh, and yet he was also extremely scientific, could have easily discussed the Big Bang and, and evolution with you <clears throat> as easily as neuroscientific concepts. But going to that Methodist church, I remember thinking I was so smart because I knew science was the pathway to truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in sixth grade, getting into some lively discussion with my confirmation mm-hmm. teacher. Now, I went into my early career wanting to believe in all of that that I learned in that church. But I must admit, I had greater and greater difficulty uh, coming up with any mode of uh, understanding of how the how conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as I tell the story in the book Proof of Heaven, in the year 2000, my, uh, I, my faith had a really tremendous shaking. It has to do with the fact that I was adopted, I had reached out to the children's home in North Carolina back in, in my teens and 20s looking for my birth mother, thinking she might be out there. And they kept getting back to me, no, she's not looking for you. Forget about it. Mm. So fine. I'd been adopted into a loving family. They'd honored all my hopes and dreams. I could go with that. And that's the way I left it until uh, decades later, uh, early 2000, when my oldest son, Evan IV, who's then in sixth grade, Charles River School, Dover, Massachusetts, had a school project in family genealogy. Mm. 
And it was that school project where he said, no, Dad, we have to find out more about your birth family. Mm -hmm. So he encouraged me to write another letter to the children's home, which I did, fully expecting to get the same answer I'd always got before. No, she's not out there. Forget about it. And this time I got a different answer. Mm -hmm. In a two-minute phone conversation with a social worker, I found out that my birth parents had actually gotten married. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not only that, that they had three children, Mm -hmm. but that their youngest uh, child, a sister, had died two years earlier. That would have been 1998. Mm -hmm. They were still grieving her loss, so it was not a good time to come back in their life. Mm -hmm. And then that was the end of the phone call. And I didn't realize it until months later, but that phone call was a real burner. It it sent me into a dark night of the soul. I stopped taking my sons to church. I stopped saying prayers with them at night. I just gave up on any... I became agnostic is the mm-hmm. way I would put it. Mm-hmm. That there was no way that I saw evidence that, that prayer was real, that there was a loving personal God out there. Um, and I just dropped it all until my near-death experience, my coma, showed me very clearly... Uh, how that was all totally wrong. Because in your near-death experience, the, there was a um, a portion of it, even above that beautiful verdant valley with the butterflies and the music, where you felt you were in direct communion with the creator of the universe. That is, uh, yes, that's a beautiful part of the story. And uh, really, uh, I would have to take us back to that butterfly wing, the millions mm-hmm. of butterflies looping and spiraling above this valley. Yeah. Ultra real, mm-hmm. much more real than anything I've ever experienced here. That's the hard part for people to get. And yet more than half of indie ears talk about how much more real that realm is than this one. But the good news is I wasn't alone on the butterfly wing. Mm-hmm. There was a beautiful young woman. And I'll never forget her appearance. She was dressed in the same kind of simple peasant garb that uh, the people down in the valley, all the dancers were uh, dressed in, but lovely colors. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget her, her sparkling blue eyes, her high cheekbones, high forehead, broad smile, soft, uh, light brown hair. And she never said a word to me, but she didn't have to. Uh, and she looked at me with this look of pure love. And I, I remember around the same time I was aware of her presence, There was this soft summer breeze that blew through. And even though the scene looked the same, it changed everything. That soft Mm -hmm. breeze, as I referred to it in my writings, was like a divine wind or the breath of God. And that was my first kind of knowing, given that I was amnesic for everything. I was learning about these realms for the first time. That was my first awareness of the power of that divine force of love, that God force, in creating every bit of it. Even the the lower four-dimensional space-time that I knew was down below the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. All of that spiritual realm with its deep time, the place where we'd have life reviews and all of that. But that soft summer breeze was that divine wind. And yet what happened next was the most stunning. And that's where those swooping orbs of angelic choirs above provided portals to higher and higher uh, levels of awareness all the way out to what I call the core. Mm -hmm. And the process of getting there was witnessing not only four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, but several of these uh, layers of deep time and of spiritual kind of organization and causality all collapsing down. And in the core, that really cannot be put into words at all. I I often use an analogy uh, of it being uh, like on the very edge of the event horizon of a black hole, where you're kind of oscillating between pure, absolute oneness, infinity, e- eternity, love, God force, 
and the first stages of parcelation as in the highest spiritual realms, it starts to split out into any kind of separation of that God force. Mm -hmm. And in that core realm, the whole higher dimensional multiverse had been compressed into what I call the oversphere as part of the lessons. And there was a sense there that even though all of eternity and infinity could be represented as this little ball, there was still beyond that uh, infinite dimensionality of infinity all overflowing with pure uh, wholeness of, of love, mm-hmm. of the love of the creator for the creation, mm-hmm. or the best way I can use words to describe it. And there was a brilliant light that was there as this interpreter, translator. Uh, and But at times, because of that same oscillation on the event horizon, I was totally one with every bit of the oneness. You know, to talk mm-hmm. about being one with God, I think one of the biggest travesties <clears throat> of some of our religious orthodoxies is they say that cannot be true. Mm-hmm. And it's because they look at the ego and the human as such a small thing. Yeah. How can that possibly uh, be on the same terms as that infinite eternal God force? But in truth, I would say that is our speck of awareness as a conscious mm-hmm. being is a very direct link to that God force of pure oneness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so truly, we are one with that God force. And it should be obvious to anybody that the petty little ego, the linguistic rational brain, and all the little petty meanderings of humans are way, way, way down below that. But all of us have that awareness. And it's the awareness. That's what Karen and I often teach in our workshops, is developing that sense of the observer within because that awareness is something that goes all the way to that pure core of the universe. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, we are all truly one with the divine. And it's what really gives us the power to rise above this myth of the kind of sinfulness and uh, kind of bad boy behavior of all human beings, which is just taken as an assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but realizing that that's not who we truly are at our deepest sense of awareness. We are, in fact, one with that God force. Uh, and the way I kind of saw it on my journey is I saw that in truth there was no a battle between good and evil, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that in fact evil and darkness, and, and I'm no Pollyanna, there's no doubt of the apparent darkness and evil and kind of bad things that happen to people in this world. Um, but what I saw is that unconditional love has infinite power to overwhelm because that apparent darkness and evil is only the lack or absence of the light and love, and that any one of us can choose to develop that oneness with the awareness, can choose to be one with an infinitely loving God, and can therefore choose to love ourselves most fully. That was another realization of my journey, is that the problem is not that we don't love our neighbors enough or our enemies enough. It's that we fundamentally don't love ourselves enough as those divine, eternal, sacred, uh, godlike beings mm-hmm. that we can all find in deep meditation, you know, in, in life reviews, we can come to realize that we have that within us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to see the darkness as really providing stepping stones. That's why I would say that... Uh, you know, even illness and injury mm-hmm. I've come to see as beautiful stepping stones. It's how we deal with those things that allow us to mm-hmm. grow. 
Well, even though this experience uh, for you occurred 10 years ago, I'm under the impression as, as you're recounting it, it's still very much alive. It's, it is absolutely right. I mean, I would say that's an, another misunderstanding about near-death experiences. People think, well, you have an NDE, then you come back with all the answers. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's a little more accurate to say you <clears throat> might come back with better questions. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, better questions lead us towards better answers. Um, but it is uh, it is a mission in progress. And, and given my full-blown understanding now that reincarnation is absolutely a real part of the picture, mm -hmm. I know that we do this kind of work through multiple lifetimes. But don't worry. You know, learn as if to live forever and live as if to die tomorrow is a perfect guide because a lot of the knowledge remains with us, even though there is a system of what I call programmed forgetting. Mm. Uh, and that's easily demonstrable, say, in all of those um, cases of past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation, mm -hmm. because Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson will tell you, you need to be asking children those questions between ages two and six. Because after age six, there are multiple processes that occur that are natural that have to do with building up the veil mm -hmm. so that we forget the time between lives. We tend to forget uh, past lives and things like that, even though the modern world of transpersonal psychology, thanks to uh, brilliant investigators like Stan Groff, um, Michael Newton, Brian Weiss, uh, transpersonal psychology uh, shows us that you can best deal with the hardships and difficulties in this lifetime by realizing you set the stage for them in other lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And if you look at yourself as a, a multi-incarnated being, then you can start getting at the real root cause of so much of that. And any of the things that were not <clears throat> resolved in a previous lifetime and not resolved in a life review uh, are fair game for kind of challenges and hardships that you'll have to deal with and resolve in this lifetime. Uh, it's another a very good reason never to succumb to suicide. Mm. Suicide is not the correct answer, except in very occasional cases of euthanasia to alleviate suffering in a terminal disease. But otherwise, suicide usually just uh, um, postpones your having to deal uh, with those particular issues. And if <clears throat> if you can't handle them in the life review, then you have to handle them in the next incarnation. So suicide would never be a correct answer. You have to deal with them in any case. Yeah, it, there is no way out but through. Mm -hmm. That's the way I often put it. <laughs> we have to deal with the stuff that we came here to deal with. And in fact, the word healing comes from the same word as whole or wholeness mm -hmm. and health. Uh, and so I would say we're all here in the process of healing. That is becoming more of who we came to this world to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's why it's, uh, you know, the, uh, I think it was Socrates or back in that age when they said the unexamined life is not worth living. It really is worth reflecting on who we are, why we're here, where this is headed, what our purpose is. And I would say that's the, the greatest value to the individual for the kind of awakening we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, because the awakening we're talking about in proof of heaven, the map of heaven, and especially living in a mindful universe is absolutely upon us. And yes, it does involve, you know, the entire scientific community and a paradigm shift of our entire civilization. But in essence, the real power of it is how the individual uh, can take it and run with it, because it's uh, all about free will. And free will is that 
you know, $64 million question. Mm -hmm. Modern materialist science would try and convince you we don't even have free will because they'd be saying it's all chemical reactions, Mm -hmm. electron fluxes in the brain, all of material following natural laws of physics, chemistry, biology. So where would you even insert free will? Whereas my journey showed me very clearly, I believe the whole universe exists to support the free will decisions of sentient beings who are temporarily dumbed down to their knowledge of all of it, you know, that their higher soul has between lives, Mm -hmm. so that we have the emotional buy-in to live these lives, feel the pain of loss of love, but also feel the glories of love and of embodiment of kind of that divine essence of this universe and our ability to participate in it. Those are all gifts. Dr. Evan Alexander, what... uh, a delightful journey that you are sharing uh, with people. Uh, you're a scientist and a prophet. Well, I would say I'm just an interested, open-minded uh, guy, just like any of us out there who you know wants to find mm-hmm. these things out. And that's why I often stress with people, you don't need to have an NDE to know all of mm-hmm. this <clears throat> by being a conscious, sentient being. If you simply develop a, a method of meditation, mm-hmm. I try to meditate an hour or two a day. I've been doing that the last eight years or so. Um, it gives tremendous benefits for creativity, <clears throat> for guidance, uh, for insight, for connection, relationships, <clears throat> even connecting with uh, souls of departed loved ones, what have you. But... Uh, it also gives us a much grander sense of who we are and what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of insight, I think, is uh, absolutely uh, of extreme value, especially in this world we live in with all the social media, all the fake news. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense out there, the conspiracy theories. And often by going within and focusing on that heart consciousness and our inner awareness, especially when we realize that the... Uh, that our mind and consciousness are not created by the brain, but are allowed in by the brain in a very mm-hmm. limited fashion, then we find that going within consciousness is actually a way of getting out into this universe. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a tremendous gift, and all of us can avail of it. Um, uh, and that's something that we like to share uh, on ebonalexander.com. Um, people can find a lot more information mm-hmm. about me and about that uh, this pathway of discovery. Well, thank you so much for being with me. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. And thank you for being with us. 